Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Heritage Voices, episode 42. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'll be your host today. And today we are talking about sovereign stories. Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge that the lands I'm recording on today are part of the Nooch, or Ute People's Treaty Lands, the Dineta, and the Ancestral Puebloan Homeland. Today we have Kayla DeVault on the podcast, and to get us started, she's going to introduce herself. Animaju Kayla Indishikaz, Mikinakandurim. Anishinaabekwe, Minawa, Shawano, Indujaba, Hatito. Hello, I'm Kayla. I am Anishinaabe and I'm an enrolled Shawnee tribal member. My people come from the Great Lakes and the Southeast. Um, I'm also non-Native American. And on that side, I'm also enrolled in the Douglas clan from Scotland. Currently, I am speaking on Crow territory. I have been serving, most recently, I'm a lieutenant officer with the Commission Corps, which is part of the U.S. Public Health Service. Um, of course, I'm not representing them. I'm just currently stationed up here to do some work for various tribes in the north. I'm serving as an engineer for a lot of facility planning designs and also COVID response. I have a master's with American Indian Studies from Arizona State University. I started it with a mechanical engineering roots, actually, for my thesis. And it's about indigenous and authentic designing and housing and how to change HUD formulas and data conflicts and also thermal efficiency of local materials. But I love interdisciplinary studies or just being all over the place. So I am actually almost done with an MDiv from GCU, which Grand Canyon University, that is about spiritual studies, which is really enlightening and it's philosophical as well. So it actually relates a lot with indigenous perspectives in AIS, in my opinion. And I'm hoping to emphasize an MPH up to a PhD on Super fun toxicology impacts on food sovereignty with local collaboration through George Washington University. And that would be part of my work as an officer as well, since we work in public health. And in the past, I've studied at Diné College when I worked there on the Navajo Nation as an engineer and uh, working with the archaeology and cultural resource department. And then I studied at Case Western Reserve University through various courses in STEM, biology, ecology, engineering, anthropology, and language. So basically, I love learning. I love being interdisciplinary and the perspectives it gives. And I also love sports in the outdoors and music and cats. So that's me. <laughs> yeah. So that's one of the things that I love about you know, when I was, you sent me some information so I could read up and, and study up before our conversation. That's one thing I loved about you is that it's it's a very holistic approach. You know, when we're working in cultural resources and heritage, I think people can get a little really hyper-focused on the area that they're working in. But, you know, culture obviously relates to, to all different aspects. Like, like you said, you know, the biology and natural resources and hydrology and the language and biology and AIS and engineering, you know, it all comes together. So I was really excited to, to read about all the different things that you were doing that it seems like a, a really wide array of things, but they all kind of come back, I guess, to the indigenous experience and, and anthropology and STEM and, and these, this type of work. Yeah. So could you give our listeners a bit of an intro in, in what got you interested in, in all of this, all of these types of work, I guess I should say. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think, I mean, I've been in a lot of fields and I really like the way you talk about that too, because that was like the biggest conflict I think I experienced when I went to college for the first time. And it's like, you have to pick a major and it's like, 
a major, like, first of all, how do you actually become like the conqueror of knowledge? Cause that sounds like a little weird. <laughs> and then second mm-hmm. of all, it's like, I, I was just raised in a way where these things aren't separate. And I do get a lot of people that go like, wow, you're all over the place. You don't know what you're doing. It's like, no, I came in knowing what I want to do. It's just, I'm expanding on it. And I think that came from a lot of my background. I mean, I had like a very uncomfortable unconventional kind of background. I was in a lot of different places in a lot of situations, mostly rural. And my grandma was a traditional medicine person. So she did a lot of public engagement and she was, she was more specific on plant health conservation and that, but to me, that still would be interdisciplinary for other people. And I grew up doing like a lot of, they call them bio forays, like biological, ecological forest surveys and things with, with my mom. And it was like, we volunteered to do that. It was just part of like, we're, it's our responsibility and we can use science to help us with that. But also like my grandma's traditional information as well. And then when it comes to specifically like some of the archeology span and anthropology experiences I had, cause I did some field work in archeology span that kind of got me interested in, I guess the othering that can happen in science world. And sort of that's when it occurred to me, but I was always fascinated with history Um, not only like my own, like I'm really into trying to figure out exactly who I am. I think it's really important to know everyone in my family, where they come from, but also other people and how everyone has interacted, whether it's individuals or like nation states over time. My parents actually have a box of, of, they're called chunkies. They're um, an ancient like stickball game that was in the Southeast that we had in our family. Games that like actually sometimes escalated to the point that they, people killed each other playing it. And it actually really reminds me of like a Scottish game that we play. And I just thought like, wow, why don't we look at people as how they're more similar rather than rather than how they're, they're more different to each other. And the other thing that fascinated me was three dimensions and time are is the fourth dimension. You talk about that in STEM a lot and in, in STEM, if someone doesn't know, it's the science, technology, engineering and uh, mathematics. So I always thought that was interesting because it blows my mind. If I think of a time lapse video of like a site, you've got the dimensions in front of you, but then the time lapse gives you that fourth dimension. And it's just so crazy to think that you could have three stagnant points and yet so much has happened. So much history has happened in this space. So it kind of is like one of those philosophical things that I would be fascinated by, but I kind of got turned off to some of the science fields and the way that they work after I was on a dig once on an ancestral site, actually a Shawnee site as a older teenager, like adult age. And I realized I needed to discover like a new paradigm, but I still wanted to do Western science. But yeah, so I guess all those components between my parents really pushing me to say like, you have more opportunities than like your ancestors had. You need to go this way. You need to do work that's both good for your people in the land, but also that doesn't compromise anything, but still like will actually allow you to be successful and help people. It really was more, that's how I started into engineering and started into anthropology kind of studies as an undergraduate. And then it just sort of blossomed out from there based off of my other experiences. I mean, I knew in the beginning the idea of where I wanted to go, what it was, but it was all the steps along the way that kept, it's like, you know, a river with rocks. You'd flow one way and then it pushes you another way and you just kind of go with it. So, but I love it. So Yeah. Okay, so, Kat, you touched on, like, half of the things that I want to make sure we cover today. (laughs) So, let's start with, you mentioned, you know, your work and how it's focused on anthropology, STEM, and Indigenous peoples. Can you talk about some of the different ways that you've worked having these different concepts intersect? Yeah, so, when it comes to all the different intersections, I think... Honestly, probably the beginning of my experiences actually came from before I was working. And I think part of that is because the places I've worked still struggle to get that intersection right. But basically, when it comes to STEM, it's actually a very Western sort of field. And it's not to say, you know, it deals with methods and numbers and studies. It's not to say that non-Western peoples didn't have the kind of methods to do that. I mean, like look at astrology and native Hawaiians and Maori people who can navigate vast expanses of water in like small boats. Obviously there's intelligence and that's not to say that 
uh, but it's just whenever that becomes the accepted way of how to study something, it can be a little bit colonial feeling, I guess. And indigenous peoples too are often so studied and not seen as scientists. So that's another factor that has a problem when it comes to intersectionality. And then with anthropology, of course, the very nature of it's kind of an othering place or it can be if it's not done in a careful manner. And so I think the way to blend all that together, it has to do with respect and collaboration and using the best of both worlds. Somebody once told me it's like having one foot in each canoe. <laughs> uh, he was a, an engineer. He works for NASA. He's a half Onondaga, half Irish. And I was like, yeah, I feel that. <laughs> so, <laughs> but so when I, I actually did work with engineers without borders for several years, I worked not only as a reviewer for a published piece on how well they're doing engagement with communities in Nicaragua, which I had been to on another project. Mm. But then I also worked in Cameroon in Western Central Africa doing, I went a couple of times actually to, I was a French translator, but I was also working with them as an engineer project manager and just sort of observing and seeing how we came in basically saying, oh, this is how we're going to do it. And then we got there and they didn't have the tools that we're used to and whatever. And the people who were non- predominantly white, but all American, you know, non-indigenous or anything sort of peoples that were leading it were like, well, we don't have the tools. How do they live here? What are we going to do? <laughs> some guy grabs like a stick and he grabbed a rope. And this guy from the village who everyone was kind of like, this guy doesn't know anything. He climbs like he scales a like tree sized pole, creates like a wedge and fixes the solution. And he doesn't have an engineering degree. Mm-hmm. I was like, yes, that's what we need to respect indigenous perspectives and like how people know how to work with what they have. So that kind of made me realize there was a conflict. And that's part of what initiated some work that I did with the American Indian Science and Engineering Society, ACES, to create a new model. And that model was inspired by when I went to India and I had a couple that I thought I would mention that stand out the most. One is Barefoot College and they have groups in more than one place around the world, but we visit their Jaipur site and they address social issues through empowerment and through providing knowledge while still respecting traditional knowledge as well as cultural existence, I guess you could say. And so for example, they were addressing the issue that women in some parts of the world uh, or parts of India, I should say, didn't have access to feminine hygiene. And so they found creative solutions to get indigenous workers from the tribes in the area a job working to manufacture in these like really efficient, like small processing areas in the campus. And they got to learn how to have a trade in the same time. And they got to go back to the communities and continue that trade. They did the same thing with medicine doctors and dentists. They would train people and let them go back to their communities and work even sometimes with their own resources. And then the other part of it was there were women that had designed, they never had an engineering degree, but they designed solar panels that also had a solar oven attached to it so people could cook food without energy, Nice, just using the sun. And it's like, they actually were safeguarding that patent. It was amazing. And then the other place that was the biggest possible inspiration, I would say, was the Dean Dial Policy Institute or DPI. And I actually kind of try to partner ACES with them, how they were able to address indigenous issues through their ingenious and they basically had these campuses set up. They were able to get people out of poverty and sort of reverse the impacts of colonization in a lot of places by simply merging traditional knowledge of medicine, plants, all these other techniques, food systems, whatever you want to call it, merging that with some laboratory technologies and things that were very simple and rudimentary, but that were developed from the Western world. And they honored both of them in a way that worked perfectly and has had like significant impact on those communities in India. So we tried to collaborate those ideas and create a model, me and another student that's also an ACES. And it was awesome because even though I don't think any projects or maybe only a couple projects kind of kicked off with our new native engineers without borders model, but we got a, both got Sequoia medals for it, which is a lifetime membership. And it was just to have done something and put it in someone's hands that is like a praxis to what they could do. That's what it was all about, not just the theories. So it, India was like a huge inspiration. And I think they're truly, those programs are truly a way that those entities, those interdisciplinary entities can work in like a truly authentic way. Okay. <laughs> So many things, so many things. Sorry. <laughs> so I guess 
first, I th- I think that's really important. The point that you made about them keeping the patent and having that ownership and control. I mean, because that's that's power in our society, sadly, but yes, or in our world, I guess today. So I'm kind of curious how that applied to the medicine part, because obviously that's that can be like a really tricky cultural appropriation kind of thing that's happened in the past. And then also I'm I'm just curious with the first one. I mean, menstruation can be all kinds of culturally meaningful in different ways. And so I'm curious, like, was there any sort of like effort to check in beforehand and be like, is this going to be because like I can like some of the communities that I've worked with, I could see that like really not being okay. You know what I mean? Um, So I'm just curious about like (laughs) how that conversation happens and how that went, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I think when it comes to like the communities in India, I I mean, there's, first of all, I don't know the intricacies of how they handle each individual tribe. That's something that I never specifically studied. It was more of a point of how do they blend knowledges? And, uh, but I mean, gosh, India has so many tribes, it has so many languages. So it, in a way was a good model for that. But yeah, when you talk about things like menstruation, that's, definitely an interesting topic, especially to bring up with people who might affiliate certain protocol around that with like very strict Christian or Jewish or like ancient Bible sort of opinions about like, you know, cleanliness and mm-hmm. burnt offerings and all these other things. But that's one of the problems when it comes to indigenous peoples is there are some cultures that see that as being really powerful. Like in my culture, women aren't supposed to touch drums. Because the drum is supposed to be the power to the man who doesn't have the power of life that the woman has. And so women don't touch the drum because they're just so powerful. And that's the, it's not because it's like, oh, this is the man's thing. It's like, because this is how man can be equals if he learns the drum. I don't know. Maybe I'm not saying that quite right. But Mm -hmm. my point being that it's, it's not so much, oh, shame on women. Go, you know, sit in your little hut and wait it out because shame on you for being dirty. It's like no, you give life that's respected. You know, you're, well, what's interesting is like a lot of tribes are are actually maternal lines that they're, you know, maternally based tribes. The Shawnee are actually paternal. So I feel like mildly hypocrite talking about that, but (laughs) I think that also has shifted with, you know, political reasons, but no. So for women, like for example, the autumn around the Phoenix area, South of Phoenix, and even the autumn that are down, like the Donna autumn that are in the you know, Southern Mexican border there, uh, Southern Arizona border with Mexico, they have beliefs about women not going on mountains, especially when they're on their cycle. And it's not because you're dirty, but it's because you're powerful. And I think it's just Western society so easily can shift that, that a lot of times indigenous groups might get flack for something that's actually so different from what other people are accustomed to. And I think that just shows worldview creates bias, generally speaking, or largely speaking. And that's actually something that I first observed doing my first archaeological digs uh, was just was just that thing that how people interpreting what's laid before them can be so wrong because their own worldview and they're not doing intentionally, but they just don't know. And yeah, it's it can be challenging and there's no straight cut answer for how to work with everybody. It's all about just knowing that that can come up and trying to learn whenever you're working with a particular group, what you're actually working with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is funny because the the ironic thing about that is the argument back is, oh, we can't include tribes in archaeology work because they'll make it biased. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, sorry. <laughs> well, we are already at our first break point, so we will be back here in a second. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30 
30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code HEVO, H-E-V-O. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney, make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, we are back. So I want to touch on, you mentioned a couple of times in the first segment about the othering that occurs in archaeology and anthropology. And you were talking a lot about bias. So I'm really curious to hear more about those experiences and maybe how the fields do better in that way also. Yeah, sure. So I guess, well, I should clarify too, when I talk about othering, it's a term that comes up a lot in probably in a lot of fields, but definitely in AIS, American Indian Studies. But we read about how there tends to be this hidden bias that can go on for a long time, especially in like colonial states where, you know, it's basically these people came and settled here, but there are these other people that were here before And that's part of the propaganda to encourage further settlement is to keep othering them and keep making them not us unless you can assimilate them. And so I think I, I think in some ways I had been subconsciously aware of that for a long time, but I don't think that really hit me until I was actually working at some archeological digs while I was kind of entering college. I was doing some youth programs to get people exposed to different fields And I got the opportunity to go to parts of the tri-state around Pennsylvania, Great Lakes kind of area and do some digs. And one of them was Old Hannahstown. It was built in the 1768, 1769 kind of time frame. And it's just like some log houses, two taverns, a fort. It was destroyed in 1782 by the English and the Senecas. And it was considered like one of the last more hostile attacks that occurred during the American Revolution. So a lot of the artifacts that we would find would just be like porcelain and the focus on dating, like the style and the color of it, the time that people were importing those products to try to date it. Uh, We discovered old wagon ruts, so we were able to actually map out the road that led to one of the taverns, like things like that. Like there weren't a lot of valuable things, uh, probably because over time people would loot things and who knows what. But we did a lot of, well, what happened here exercises. So they would have the people that were in the fields that were learning that were students sort of take different data points that we had and sort of, you know, if you would write a narrative of what happened at the site, what would it be? And they would, they would write that narrative and... I started to realize like, well, they only have a limited view of what they know, especially because they're students. So it's hard to say, did that really happen? Because some of the storylines could have been totally different. And then on top of that, we didn't go to any mound sites, but we went to some protected fields that were kind of in the area. And actually one of the fields that we dug on was purported to be Shawnee ancestral. And so it felt a little bit like spooky to me because it was actually really close to where I knew some of my family had lived a long time ago. And we would like uncover post holes and sherds and a fireplace. There was a fireplace we found. And I actually discovered a handprint leaning into the fire. And it was like really eerie. And I remember putting my hand on it and the instructor was like, don't touch it, don't touch it. And then we went and talked about the people that lived here. And they did it in such a way where I was like, that's not how my family talks about my people who lived here. And so I realized like, it wasn't necessarily they were doing it on purpose. It was just the nature of how the field's been. And this idea of othering, it's like we were talking about these people, but I was like, do I say them or do I say us? Or it was really strange. And I realized how bias 
isn't always, it's not necessarily intentional, but it can be so embedded in systems and in the way that we work. And it made it really difficult. And I think it actually is what turned me to look at different research interests, how to incorporate that theory into something else. And especially because my, well, my engineering degrees are focused are civil, uh, geotechnical and environmental. And then, you know, I partially studied mechanical too. So most of my work has been with the earth and development of projects. And of course, archaeology is the closest department I work with in my, when I worked on the Navajo Nation, especially with a tribal development. But yeah, it's one of those things where we need infrastructure, especially in the society we live in. But that's another conflict that I would see constantly is just how the processes happen and the oversight to make sure it's done right, to make sure that sites are dealt with properly and how these sites are actually impacting people. So it's something that not everyone's born with knowing how to respond to, but it's also kind of lacking in our society to be conscious of it. And so I think it's, it's a really important topic for people to, to really kind of consider. Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, COVID is really bringing a lot of that to the surface right now. Just looking at, you know, the Navajo nation and the, the ways that they're, rates are so high because, you know, they don't have that infrastructure in place. Like they don't have running water. A lot of the families, they don't have electricity. And, you know, like if it's raining really hard, the, the, the roads turn to mud and kids can't get to school for extended periods. That one's not COVID related, but it's, it's just a yeah. fact, you know, so that makes things really hard on the one hand. I mean, obviously like literally life or death in terms of COVID, but then also, you know, if, if you can't get to school on a regular basis, that makes it hard to live in the larger society. But then on the other hand, you know, there's cultural ways of doing things. And if those aren't respected on your own nation, then like, what is even the point of, of sovereignty, I guess? I don't know. Yeah. I guess, first of all, I'll just start with talking about like the COVID stuff. And that's actually, that's kind of another example. The media representation of the Navajo Nation's struggle has been really challenging because first of all, the data collection is completely just inconsistent around the world. The reporting is inconsistent, the reliability of tests, the ability to get tests. But then there's also the just cultural aspects of a lot of families live communally. It doesn't mean because they're poor. Sometimes it does. And sometimes it just means that's how you live. But I think sometimes too, the running water issue, that's definitely a thing. And that's definitely important to consider. I think it also can be dangerous whenever it makes people have this attitude, like, well, that's because they're, you know, dirty Indians. And I've heard that narrative start that rhetoric. And that's kind of what I'm talking about where you start to see how these embedded microaggressions just sneak up into conversations. And then, yeah, like I totally know what you mean about the roads. I had to, I mean, those roads look like freaking melted butter sometimes, like trying to <laughs> drive down. I've had to design roads and I had so little money because, well, there wasn't much money to go around for such a large nation with like whatever, hundred thousand miles of road. But then on top of that, so much money goes to oversight and it goes through the fact that it's a lot more expensive to bring in gravel, for example, we try to develop a gravel pit, but the BIA owns the mineral rights. Like a lot of this is also still such remnants of colonial impact on systems. And I don't think people understand even what a treaty is, let alone how that trickles down into, oh, the kids got to go to school and the school's two hours away and the roads are terrible and, and all of that. So, I mean, infrastructure has always existed. It's always had different forms and as society changes and tries to make itself more globalized, those forms become more urgent and more sophisticated, if you want to call it that, like more complicated. But definitely the way that people deal with construction is a huge thing. And I know we had an issue with one of our roads that we constructed and that was a challenge because we have Navajo, Navajo archaeologists, but in Navajo tradition, you don't touch a dead body. Somebody dies, you rip out the Northwestern part of their hogan. And I guess I think you can have other people that specialize in the ceremony to bury them. But, you know, you, you let them be um, touching a dead body is generally speaking. I'm only speaking from what I've learned in Diné College or through my experience. It's not uniform, maybe, but. But it definitely posed a challenge in our office because we had Navajo archaeologists and we sometimes encountered remains. Not as often as we encounter Anasazi, 
pottery pieces because those are like everywhere. But they had this one point where they had to decide if they were going to relocate these bodies and they decided to put more money into rerouting the road so that they didn't have to handle bodies. And I think that is such a challenging thing for indigenous people too, is dealing with another archeological survey might go in and they find bodies and they want to take out the bones. They want to analyze what happened, but somebody could have just been buried there like peacefully under ceremony. And then you just undid that by taking them out. And like, what if that was, you know, a cemetery where your grandparents have been buried. And then years later, they didn't know it was a cemetery and they pull out, you know, your grandparents' bones. It's somebody's ancestors. So it's, it's really difficult. And there are a lot of issues like from the Mexican American border wall running by the Donna Autumn nation or the loop 202 project that was in, uh, in Phoenix or even snowball or all the pipelines we see bears ears run for salmon. Like there's all kinds of ways that these government systems have sort of not considered how their impacts are on tribes. But I also want to point out in Alabama, actually there's a casino under controversy and it's actually tribe on tribe. The Muscogee and Oklahoma are telling the porch band of Creek in Alabama that they can't build their wind river casino because it's on burial grounds and they were removed to Oklahoma. So they can't be there to protect it. So it's, it's complicated. There's no, there's no cookie cutter solution. And it's, it's more complicated. I think than people realize if they just go into the fields of like civil engineering, they have no idea. They might be like, Oh, I need to have an arc permit and an um, anthropological study. And then I'm good to go once that's cleared and we're done. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and (laughs) that's how you get into uh, standing rock type situations, right? Yeah, (laughs) definitely. Okay. Another element of, well, I mean, I guess it's tied in and especially tied into one of the last examples you just gave. You know, you mentioned to me previously that you'd worked on some international development efforts and that consent was a big issue that came up. So can you touch on on that aspect of, of development versus cultural beliefs and stuff like that? Yeah, sure. Yeah. With international development stuff, I mean, one of the things people would point to a lot, especially when Standing Rock came out and I had a lot of issues, a lot of issues around that because I felt like a lot of people showed up and I felt like it was more like a club or a party and it wasn't so much, or it was free advertisement for some of the organizations, including some of the sister organizations I was working with. I went up there twice myself. The first time was actually the first day that everyone got pepper sprayed. I just happened to get there like literally an hour before everyone started walking up there in the morning. So that was fun. And then the second time was after I had come back from the COP climate conference, COP 22 in Morocco, where I did some work with the Imadere community that was under a really similar thing. So I came back to do a solidarity announcement on the radio and give them a copy of a poster. They had a other copy in Morocco that showed solidarity, but yeah, it's, it's difficult because a lot of people point to UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People. And the fact of the matter is it is 100% toothless. It doesn't do anything. And part of it is like they want to say, oh, you need to get you need to consult with tribes. You consult with tribes. Well, you can consult with tribes. That basically means oh, I talked to them and they told me you can't do this. And then you do it anyway. So that's the key is there's consultation, but then there's also consent. And one of the things that I, so I went to a World Bank negotiation as part of one of my organizations, and I had the opportunity to actually ask directly to Christine Lagarde from the uh, International Monetary Fund and Jim Young Kim, who was the president at the time at World Bank. And they fund huge projects. And they're always talking about, you know, oh, the developing world, which is kind of a condescending ingrained thing in the UN. And they say they're trying to improve it. But I always feel like a lot of this is like lip service. But I asked them, I'm like, so if you're working for nations, if an indigenous nation is telling you you need to consult with them and get consent in Brazil or wherever it is, why do you go ahead with these projects? You're supposed to be helping people. And they basically flat out said, we look to the authority of the country, not to the indigenous nations. It's, you know, it's the United States that funds most of those projects. And I said, well, what about the tribes that are suffering and they don't support those projects? Where's the help for them? Or, or where's the interest in, in what they're trying to tell you? And they're like, well, they're part of the U.S. is basically what they said, which was like a violation of international law of like sovereignty. So how can you be working in places that are associated with the World Bank or the U.N. when they, they have that just embedded in their thinking systems. And I think some of it's intentional. I think some of that's just how they want to function because it's all about power dynamics. But, uh, but also on the level of 
people that participate. I think so many people come to places like Standing Rock without without the actual background of what they're talking about. And they can sometimes cause more harm than they do good in trying to show up and be allies, as they would say. So it's 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 hard whenever the educational system fails so many people about these topics. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking about basically people that are going and, and being more performative, I guess, in their help than actually helping. So I guess from that perspective, if you were talking to somebody that went to Standing Rock and, you know, thought that they were being a solid ally, what... I mean, how can they be a better ally? I guess, how can they actually be an ally? What, um, what do they need to know? Yeah. So, and well, as you know, I founded the sovereign stories approach and that actually came out of the standing rock issue. And that came out of my frustration. It came out of me showing up and I was brought on with an organization he was using Standing Rock as a platform. And it's funny because they gave me all the space to talk about it if I wanted to. The problem was no one listened and people didn't show up to listen to it, but they expected me to show up and they were disappointed if I didn't have, you know, something indigenous. Like what's funny is I've actually intentionally gone to spaces since my engagement with them, making sure I don't wear like beaded things or anything stereotypical, which I don't like that, but it was kind of like a like a minor protest in my own mind because I felt like I was getting tokenized and I didn't want to be their soapbox Indian standing up there saying something or whatever they wanted me to show up as because after the Standing Rock incident had happened and we were all reflecting on it, I was like, all right, guys, we're going to work on this new this new frame, this new direction where we're going to really focus on bringing in indigenous delegates because we go to the United Nations, the Human Rights Conference in Geneva. Or, well, I did that actually with a different organization, but you know, we, we do different places in the world and we like to center indigenous rights, but it was a predominantly white, predominantly wealthy youth group until they started incorporating more people. And as that happened, more and more people started to leave which I thought was interesting. And they founded some of the largest movements that you probably have heard of that are on Twitter, which I won't name. But yeah, it's founded by basically white wealthy kids that didn't like that it was being indigenous centered. And I, I got the real gist of that when I sat down at a meeting before that division happened and I offered free services. I said, I will give you a 20 minute lecture at breakfast with just the most basic information. If you'll just listen to me, I'll explain to you the connection between treaty rights and pipelines, because when they spoke, they didn't know what they were talking about. And one person showed up and she showed up because she always shows up for me. And she, she, I haven't talked to her in a couple of years, but she texts me all the time and just checks in. And like, if I, if I need something, she'll always be there for me or, and tell me if she can't be because she has her own needs. And she's literally the only person I was so disappointed. Other people like slept in and that was their excuse. But I was just like, how can you do this work if you won't take the time? So that's when I tried to create something separate, which is Sovereign Stories. And that was basically an approach of how to give free education to people who are willing to take the time to listen to it. The challenge is actually getting them to listen to it still. And I think that's just always going to be the challenge. (laughs) Right. Like I've said about this podcast, it can be a little bit of of preaching to the choir, (laughs) but I do want to get into that more. But we are at our second break point, but we will come back and delve into Sovereign Stories and what it's all about. So see you all in a minute. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks. Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block because there are drinks then there are drinks from mcdonald's mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for a dollar 49 perfect with our classic fries price and participation may vary cannot be combined with any other offer Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. you've worked hard for what you have your money your assets your 401k and home isn't it all worth protecting nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft lifelock ultimate plus helps protect your finances with up to three million dollars in reimbursement 
LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Okay, and we're back. So I guess before we move into talking about sovereign stories, because I really want to get to that, I do want to make one point and... The point is that, Kayla, you've been talking about doing this breakfast for people at Standing Rock and you're doing Sovereign Stories and, you know, you're answering my questions on this podcast. And I want to acknowledge that I am asking a lot of emotional labor of my guests, you know, in explaining all of these concepts and, and um, their perspective and all of these experiences mean to them. And sometimes those can be somewhat traumatic experiences. So I don't want people to think that, you know, this is necessarily appropriate to be asking of people all of the time. You know, we should be educating ourselves and not just asking all of that emotional labor from people, you know, people of color who get asked for that on top of everything else they do all the time that we don't get asked of ourselves. But basically that since this is a setting that reaches lots of people, just like Sovereign Stories does, that that's why this is more of an appropriate I guess, appropriate <laughs> setting to be asking these questions because at least they're getting a lot of, you know, you're only having to explain it once and, and reaching a lot of people as opposed to, you know, if every single person is asking the same things. So just something for people to think about. And Kayla, I don't know if you have anything that you want to add or, you know, different feelings or. Yeah, I mean, I definitely I feel that. And I and that's also a hard thing when it came to like trying to do this project, because I've been asked to do, for example, land acknowledgement for places and found out later that other people got to go to an event for free and I had to pay for it, but I thought it was a privilege that they let me speak because they were listening to me and that I, I don't know the you know so-called ethics, what it really should be. And that can all be tough to actually pin down possibly based on people's perspectives on things. But um, I mean, yeah, it is, the project is free labor that I do. And that's because I feel like it's a privilege that I've been able to get the scholarships to go to school, get the grants to go to school, and not everyone has access to these sorts of programs. And I feel like it's a failure of education system and not the individuals that are teaching, but of the system itself that hasn't been able to teach people these things. So I do that so that I can try to help teachers not only learn themselves, but also have materials as well as individuals. And, and I'm always open to how I can do better. So I appreciate the disclaimer as well. So there you go. Yeah. And okay, so let's move into talking about Sovereign Stories because it's really... Um, so basically, I mean, it's a YouTube channel. I mean, and obviously I'll let you explain it, but just want to point out some different things that you have on here. Like, obviously, I'm from Arizona. I don't want to say an Arizona native. <laughs> oh, right. Because <laughs> <laughs> that would... Yeah, that might not be the, the best way of representing myself. Born and um, raised. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was born and raised in Arizona as a non native person. And so you have a couple of episodes on a history of Arizona. You have current event stuff like the the lands of land of lakes and the, the mascots um, discussions or a video on that, you know, a video on NAGPRA, which comes up a lot in the, this podcast, land acknowledgments, cultural appropriation. Why not to dress as an Indian for Halloween? I mean, like the kind of stuff that, you know, people maybe get asked a lot and don't want to have to do that emotional labor to explain every time. So it's a really good resource for people where they can just say, oh, you want to learn about Mauna Kea? Like, here's a video instead of like each person having to to do that again. And and like you said, great for for classrooms because it's there's covering a lot of, of really important topics and history and, and things like that in an easy and fun, digestible way. So anyway, sorry, I will let you introduce your own thing that you're doing. Sure. So as I mentioned before the break, this all came out of just that frustration of repeating myself, people not necessarily listening and realizing there are people that want to learn, but don't have a way to access something. And not that everyone has access to YouTube or whatever. And I actually have started to delve into, did a couple podcasts myself, actually deleted 
one like I recorded a couple of times. It's, it's really hard. So that's the other thing. I'm not super tech savvy. Like I'm an engineer. I can do some things really well. Other times. Oh my gosh. Like, so anyway, I'll get back to that, but yeah, I feel you though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sovereign stories started as just like, you know, I want to do something in my spare time. That's a hobby that makes me feel like I'm contributing back. Cause I think another big word in even the discussions earlier is reciprocity. And what does that mean? And, and I'm not saying that this is the same as like the reciprocity being like, if I go and study for a PhD with a tribe, like I can't just do the theory, write the paper, do the study they wanted. I have to make sure the praxis part of it's implemented. So I don't know if it's quite as in depth as that, but I feel like it is somehow giving back to people in the way that like I spent all this time studying this topic I have the ability to pay for the software right now and I have sometimes more time than other times, sometimes no time at all, but I try to be consistent if I can, if things come up, if someone messages me, Hey, this is a hot topic, go do this. But the idea of it is, yeah, it's, it's trying to give people who use YouTube so much. I mean, I've seen people attention span is like 20 minutes on some videos that I'm like, what are you watching? Like, you know, it's not really education. It was like somebody opening cans of food that were like rotten. I'm like, that's such a weird thing to watch for 20 minutes. <laughs> but anyway, that was, yeah, that was something that kind of, I was comparing that to my own watch times and realizing the intention span of people can be really limited. And that's such a challenge, but I wanted to do this to at least give a medium. And I know there are uh, high schools and there are colleges and universities that are using it actually, I work with a pollination magazine. I've been on some of their podcasts and I help with some of their scripting. And I know one of, one of our authors there actually uses it in his classes in California, which is really exciting because it makes me feel like I'm not just, you know, shouting into the void, (laughs) putting stuff into cyberspace. (laughs) But yeah, the idea of it is it's just breaking down. I don't want to say it replaces an AIS degree, but I try to walk people through. I keep it in a numbered order, but I also keep it in categorized lists. So every short, it can be like really short. Some of them get long. I try to break them into segments if they get too long. Usually no more than, I say probably my worst is like 12 minutes, but that's, it's hard because some some concepts are so complicated. I also have to keep in mind someone might not be watching through the whole channel and they're just going to click on, like you mentioned, Mauna Kea. Well, if you have no background, like it's really hard to have to include some information. But I first started off with just simple things like my definition videos are about what is sovereignty, what is self-determination. And it's just an explanation, not only of the definition of it, but then in the context of an indigenous perspective. And the idea is to give these resources to help like dispel myths and stereotypes and to correct a lot of these failures in our systems to have this kind of material from this perspective, uh, from an indigenous perspective and to end like the perpetuation of racial attitudes that contribute to like why people think it's justifiable to be crazy at a sports game, doing something really offensive that would never fly for any other kind of person. I mean, just in the context of, for example, Rachel Dolezal was a big deal and I understand why it was a big deal, but then how does the same thing happen with Elizabeth Warren? And that becomes a new slur out of a poor misappropriated woman named Pocahontas that we hear all the time. And now everyone thinks that's funny. Like just the fact that you have such a dichotomy in how people react to what happens to different people was like really upsetting. So I wanted to give it as an orientation to people and to indigenous people too. It's not just to non-indigenous people. I mean, you're not born with this knowledge. So it's for everybody. And I have actually a lot of viewers around the world as well, which is really interesting. But a lot of people are interested in knowing that history because they don't get a lot of access to it. It's just trying to get visibility for visibility for nationhood and sovereignty. But yeah, the accessibility issue is difficult too. And that's the accessibility meaning like I saw a gap. There's a lot of really great indigenous literature and other things out there. But if I recommend a book to someone and they pick it up, if they don't have the background, they're going to be like, uh, this just sounds really radical. I don't understand it. So <laughs> I think that was a, another thing was trying to bridge that gap. But it's also knowing what to include and not. I try to, I'm also struggling because, yeah, I'm not, I'm not an animator. I had to learn the software. I can be really bad at enunciation. I mean, <laughs> it looks like you are. I mean, <laughs> it's really cool. Like you do, oh. you do the hand drawing as you're talking. It's, it's like, I mean, it's fun. I can see why people use it in classrooms. 
I'll be, be surprised at the criticism though. And I understand it because some of my earlier videos, like my most popular one, I think is what is sovereignty. I think it has like over 20,000 views now. Oh wow! It's not like I'm really good at social media pushing. Like I'm terrible. Like, I don't know. I don't know a thing about social media. Like screw that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I would just detract people from my page if I tried too hard, but no, it's, it's hard to like, it's hard to get people's attention. And sometimes people complain I animate too much. And then sometimes they say it's just boring. And then sometimes they say my volume levels are wrong or the music's too high. And sometimes it is. I mean, my sovereign video was totally way too high, but I was learning. It was like 2017 or 2018 or something when I just started. And, and then I tried to include jokes from time to time. And then, you know, convincing people that it's important is hard because you want to keep them engaged. And I have people that are dedicated. They comment on like almost every video and I know they're going to watch it no matter how consistently I post. But then there's some people I'm like, how do I even get people to think this is important? Click on it. So unless it's taught in a classroom and that might be my best chance, but, but it was founded also in partnership with the national peace Academy, which is an organization where I operate as a secretary and I do their state registrations too. And national peace Academy is focused on peace building in on understanding. And so we decided that they brought me in as an, an indigenous representative, well, not representative, but you know what I mean? Like a, a voice, I guess you could say to incorporate and sort of fact check or think of alternatives of how they could engage people differently from an indigenous perspective in their organization. So compared to the other organizations I had worked with before, I really appreciated their approach and I, I don't get funding or anything for it. So that's obviously it's all stuff I just do as a hobby, but they've always supported me And the pollination also magazine have recently been supporting me, which helps a lot because it, uh, it gets more people talking. And I think that's, that's really the important part is to get people talking about a different point of view. Yeah. And it's really like you mentioned, what is sovereignty has 21,000 views. Like you said, it's really interesting looking at like, which ones have more views than others? Like some of the highest are what is sovereignty? What are treaties? What is assimilation? And not necessarily like, oh, Indian reorganization 1934 to 1953 is like one of the highest. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Not what I would have necessarily expected. What is paternalism? I think they use it in history classes. So I think some of them have yeah. broader context outside of like the actual topic. But yeah, it's definitely interesting. Yeah. And I mean, like COVID and health history in Indian country like that, I would really expect. But I mean, I guess it's only a month old, so <laughs> it may get there. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's interesting. I can see that, that the, the ones that, you know, are really like perfect for classroom settings. Yeah. Are some of the, the most viewed, which I guess... I mean, you've already talked on, on this some, but I guess to explicitly ask you, you know, how do you balance like keeping people interested and engaged and all of that with challenging them a little bit, you know, like either dispelling stereotypes or pushing people to be better, I guess, <laughs> you know, with like, for example, the don't dress as an Indian one. Like, how do you, how do you make that work. I mean, and I'm sure there's no like magic bullet, but from your experience, have there been things that have helped you there? Yeah, I think there's the the problem is I'd have to really even analyze who watches it. And I think most of the people who watch it either click on it because it was suggested and they don't know why, or they see it and they're like, oh, I'm going to mock this and watch it. Okay, whatever. I'm done with it. Some people are like, oh yeah, I want to hear these opinions. I agree with this. Some people are like, I just want to hear this channel, like this channel. And then when it comes to the people of the true offenders, I think unfortunately some people either takes them actually getting themselves in a really bad situation, like not by watching a video, but by doing something and being, I don't want to say it costed, but you know, like, like for example, recently on TikTok, people and a couple of students in Atlanta did some really racist things against African-Americans on their TikTok and got expelled from their high school. And they were like, Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Like, I don't know if they really are, if they really learned the lesson, but it definitely was a shock factor and that would change something. And so, and not that I want people have to do something so extreme that they get backlash for it. But unfortunately, I think there is a section of the population that won't learn if they ever learn unless they go through a big mistake like that, which I do think needs to be handled with grace, but at the same time really shouldn't be accepted. So yeah, it is really hard because I don't even really always know who my audience is and I don't want to sell out and just give them what they want to hear. Obviously, that's not the point of the channel. I think when it's used as a discussion topic in some like school settings, it's probably most useful because those are 
the future. And so those kids, even if they're in college, they're going to be thinking about that and they're going to have that experience. But when it comes to people that are the offenders that maybe like mock watch it, I mean, I don't know. I guess sometimes I like to, like I said, I throw in jokes here and there. I try to make it interesting. I try to, sometimes I'm a devil's advocate a little bit in some videos, just saying like, what about this? What about that? And sometimes I use a little bit, I don't know if it's like almost yellow journalism, but like a shock tactic in like, (laughs) oh, I forget what video it was where I was basically saying like this figure, I don't know if it was like Columbus or what I was saying, like, or no, it was a behavior of somebody. And I basically said like, by definition, that's being terrorism. Let's being a terrorist. And I'll just throw that in there, but then I'll kind of, you know, step back and be softer after. I don't know if it works or people listen, but I try to like just use different techniques to sort of make people like, cause I think a lot of times we forget what a word means or what we're actually doing. And to put it in context can make people go, wait, what? and listen to what you have to say, maybe before they click off, but at least to hear why you said that. (laughs) Right. And sometimes it's just planting that seed that eventually, you know, moves somebody at least a little bit over, if not all the way over. Makes them at least think differently for a second, possibly. Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. Although, yeah, I had, um, I was asking somebody kind of this exact question about this podcast, which was, you know, how do we, how do we reach the people that aren't opting in and, you know, the people that really need to hear it. And the answer was basically like, you can't, you can't reach those people. Yeah. You know, I think sometimes we're trying to tackle something that is it's systems that's much deeper rooted than what the individual can do. And at least as a single entity, it's a cultural shift and we shouldn't be fully responsible for that uh, as much as you don't want to hear it, but yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. Well, on that super happy note, (laughs) (laughs) we, we do have resources, you know, you can pass those people a sovereign story and not have to say anything else and do the rest of the emotional labor. (laughs) So we have that resource. What other, are there any other resources that you would recommend for people about any of the things that you talked about today? Well, sure. I think one of them I did mention, Pollination Magazine, they have their, their podcast as well. They do a lot of critical analysis. Of course, I'll, you know some of these things that I'm mentioning are going to have that accessibility issue I mentioned too, if people aren't brought up to speed the way that supposedly my channel tries to help them with. It might be hard to digest everything, but them and just other Indigenous journalists and hearing Indigenous perspective and not necessarily reading mainstream media about Indigenous peoples is definitely a help. There was a research paper I had written down, Aboriginalism and the Problems of Indigenous Archaeology by Robert McGee is something that I found interesting as he talks about the problem of framing archaeology and indigenous conflicts as ethics and the challenge of how to to, to give non-Indian scholars the right to, to learn and give perspectives without surrendering the rights and the insights and rigor of their disciplines. Like, I don't know, it's just an interesting paper. That's sort of some of the things we were talking about. People that are in that field might be interested in reading. Red Alert is a book by Daniel R. Wildcat, Saving the Planet with Indigenous Knowledge. That touches on a lot of STEM and Indigenous epistemology, which is cool. And uh, As Long as Grass Grows is the Indigenous Fight for Environmental Justice from Colonization to Standing Rock by uh, Dinah Gillia Whitaker. So since we talked about some of those topics, but yeah, it just depends on people's niche and their basis of their base of knowledge, I guess, in these issues where they can start to really digest some of the topics. Perfect. All right. Any last thoughts before we end out? Well, when it comes to sovereign stories, always be sure to subscribe, provide feedback and requests and share this channel so we can all be on the same page. I get so tired of saying that, but (laughs) (laughs) I like it. Really, if anybody wants any materials or has any suggestions, you can always leave a comment on a video. I don't always check it immediately, but I'll get to it or find me in social media, sovereign stories. I just, you know, want to improve if there's a way to improve and help people teach or whatever. Yeah. Let me know. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on and thank you for providing this resource for people. Well, miigwech and niawe for for inviting me. I, I really appreciate it. And I love talking with you and the perspectives you bring here. I think it's, you know, a lot and it's, it's really great to see your work. <laughs> Sorry, I laugh because <laughs> it does not feel like it sometimes, especially when you're talking to super smart people. So thank you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash heritage voices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Music Store. Also, if you like the show, please share with your friends or write us a review. If you have any questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org or you can find me on Facebook through Living Heritage Anthropology or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, thank you to Lyle Blanqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.